All right. Good morning, New Life East. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so good to be with you today. Hey, I, I know you just sat down, but can you please stand with me? We're going to go ahead and open this morning with the reciting of the creed uh, with one another as uh, our statement of faith. So if you can, would you read this with me? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. And we believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And if you believe that, say amen. Amen, amen, amen. amen. You can go ahead and grab a seat. Um, as Pastor Collins said, my name is Tim Shepard. I have the privilege of being the student ministry pastor at uh, New Life North. Um, and so I wanted to go ahead and open today with kind of addressing the elephant in the room. As you can see, I have a boot on my left foot. Uh, six weeks ago, I had the unfortunate privilege of going to play the game of basketball with a couple of friends on a Saturday morning. Um, we're about 45 minutes into playing, and I, I wish my story was, and I went up to dunk the basketball, whatever, and I know you wouldn't believe it anyway, but I was just running to get open for a pass. I was running to get open for a pass. I step, and I hear this massive pop. And it was so loud and so painful, I thought somebody threw a freeway at my ankle. I turn around, no one's there. Turns out I completely ruptured my Achilles tendon. Um, so six weeks, I have been unable to walk. Um, and I get this boot off, and hopefully I get a walking boot this coming week. So I have to sit and preach, which is extremely difficult for me because I like to move a lot when I preach. So that being said, I need as much feedback from you today as possible. Is that all right? All right. Um, we are in a series on the Lord's Prayer, Praying with Jesus. Um, this, is, this is the moment in the Sermon on the Mount where the Messiah looks at his followers and all those sitting around and he says, let me teach you how to pray. Um, and so we say this all the time here at church. And um, if you were not here last week, Pastor Andrew kind of opened up with why this prayer, why the words of this prayer are so important to us. I'm going to go ahead and borrow his slide from last week. Kind of three reasons 
that these, these words are so crucial for us in the Lord's Prayer. First is, is they give us a picture of who God is, who God is. And then after we can see who God is, we can more rightly see who we are as his people. And then that then informs us what is going on in the world around us. And so this is why the words of the Lord's Prayer is so important. And if you were here last week, Pastor Andrew opened up with the first of the seven statements uh, in this prayer, our Father in heaven. This reality that Jesus is indoctrinating a whole new way for the people of God to relate with Yahweh. No longer is, is he asking us to approach him talking about the God of Israel or the Lord of Jacob, anything along those lines, but that we would relate to the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the great I am as our Father, one who deeply, intimately cares for his children, for his people who art in heaven. This idea that God is supremely over all things and yet here and among us. And today we are going to hit statement number two, but the first petition in this prayer, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. So that being said, I want to go ahead and read the words of Jesus here in Matthew 6. Um, and then we're going to get rocking and rolling here. If you can, go ahead and just read it with me on the screen. Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to which all God's people said, Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love you. Your children come before you today. And we need you. We need you to teach us to pray. Would you teach us what it means to hollow your name? Father, I pray that um, you would give faith this morning. I pray that you would personally convince us of the true character and nature of yourself that has been expressed to us through Jesus Christ, the living word, and has been revealed to us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So this morning we say, Holy Spirit, come. Would you have your way in us and through us today? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. And if you are with me this morning, can you say amen? amen? There is something about a name. Something about a name. Names give us meaning. They give us identity. They give us individuality. They're the sound and the symbol by which the world, our families, call to us. They identify who we are to the world. And many times a name kind of reveals where we have come from. I think of so many of our friends in my season of life right now who are getting pregnant with their first child. And you're waiting through the nine months of what do we want to call this child and, and what significance, meaning do we want to put behind their name. And, and sometimes a name can kind of reveal where one is headed. I think of a child who's being adopted by a family. 
and they're adopted by a family. They're brought into a family the same way that God adopts his children. He gives them a new name. I think of a bride who's going to become one with her groom, and she takes upon the name of her groom. There's something about a name and we hit this, this statement here in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus is looking at his followers and he says, Hallowed be your name. Talking to God the Father. This word hallowed is really interesting. In the Greek, it's haziago. It means to sanctify, to purify, or be regarded as holy. To be regarded as holy. So another way that this could have been translated is Lord, let your name be sanctified. Or Lord, let your name be regarded as holy, set apart, above, perfect, righteous. Let this be what your name is acknowledged as. Now, in the biblical mind, to name someone meant something a little bit different today. It did not just represent the sound and symbol by which someone was called but it actually expressed essence. It expressed the very being of the person in which it was named. Pastor Aaron up here was so beautifully talking to us that we're not just, we're not just calling upon the name of God, we're calling upon who he is. When we say Jehovah Jireh, we're acknowledging that he is provider. We are calling upon his character, his nature to be manifest among us. The name represents the being of a person. And we kind of know this from the biblical narrative, don't we? The first moment that we are given God's name in Scripture is in Exodus 3. If you don't know this moment, we have Israel who's been oppressed in slavery for 400 years. And they begin to cry out to the Lord. And so God hears their cries. And in Exodus 3, you have Moses tending his, his father-in-law Jethro's flock in the wilderness of Horeb. And he comes to the mountain of God and he looks over and he sees a bush that is burning but is not being consumed. And so he steps aside to look at it and he hears a voice from the bush saying, Moses, go ahead, take off your shoes. Where you are standing is holy ground. And God begins to speak to Moses and say, hey, I have heard the cries of my people, your people back in Egypt, and I have chosen you to go back and be my instrument for deliverance. And so Moses, in kind of his own fear, not knowing what's going on, he's going, who should I tell him sent me? And we see this in Exodus 3, 13. Let's go ahead and put it up on the screen. He says this here, he says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, capital L O. R-D, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So what we have God doing here is revealing two things to Moses. He first gives Moses his being and then his name. Every time we see the name Lord, capital L-O-R-D, in the Old Testament, this is not um, them just kind of saying, hey, he's Lord over everything. This is the word we get for the name of God. But before he gives the name, he says, I am who I am. Translation, I am the God who was 
and is and is to come. I want you to tell them that the God who stands over all their past, the God who stands over all their present, and the God who stands over all their future is sending you to them. And my name is Jehovah. God is. He absolutely is. There's something about a name. Something about a name, so much so that God informed, in fact, commanded Israel to regard his name as holy. In Leviticus 22, we kind of see this command from the Lord. He says to Israel, keep my commands and follow them. I am the Lord. Do not profane my holy name, my sanctified name, for I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who made you holy, who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So what God is saying is here is, look, you are my people and I am your God. How will the world know that I am a holy God? They will look upon your lives and see a holy people. Regard my name as holy. There's something about a name. This is why the author of Proverbs in Proverbs 22 says that a good name is to be desired more than riches. There's something about a name. God's name speaks to who he is. And we have moments all throughout the Old Testament where we have humanity kind of acknowledging who he is, don't we? In Genesis 16, we actually get the first account of a human giving a name to God. We have, we have this slave, Hagar. If you know the story, God has promised Abraham and Sarah a child, but they are, they're in their old age and they're waiting for this promise to be fulfilled and God hasn't given it yet. So in an effort to take things into their own hands, Sarah looks at her husband and she says, why don't we just go do this? Why don't you take my slave and we try to lay hold of this blessing with you giving you, passing on your line through her. And Abraham being the unintelligent husband that he is said, okay. And so Hagar gets pregnant and all of a sudden Sarah, Sarah begins to look at her with such contempt, such anger, such disdain, begins to abuse her. So in an act of desperation, Hagar, this Egyptian slave woman, flees into the wilderness. She finds herself at this oasis at her rope's end. And what happens? God meets her there. And he says, Hagar, where have you come from? Where are you going? She says, you know my situations. And he said, do not be afraid. I will bless your generation as well. Your descendant will multiply just as much like the stars of the sky, like the sand on the seashore. Go back. Go back. And what do we see Sarah or Hagar respond with? Genesis 16, verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Translation, El Roi. The God who does not just generally see all things, he sees me. God's name speaks to who he is. If you look throughout the Old Testament, you have prophets who begin to speak in the name of the Lord. Oaths that were taken in the name of the Lord were considered binding. Victories and battles that were fought in the name of the Lord were victorious. One of the most unique ones we might remember in the Old Testament is in 1 Samuel 17, David versus Goliath. You have the Israelites facing off against the Philistines and this Philistine giant comes out and begins to taunt and defy the armies of the living God. And you have Israel 
cowarding, and you have the shepherd boy walking in to give food to his brothers, and he overhears this Philistine, this giant defying the armies of the living God, and he goes, who is this uncircumcised giant speaking to my God this way? And he goes, I will fight him. And his brothers begin to rebuke him. He goes before Saul. Saul tries to put his armor on him. He goes, no, I'm not going to do it this way. And he goes and he gets five stones and he goes to the battlefield. And Goliath sees this boy approaching the battlefield and begins to mock him like nobody's business. And then again defies the armies of the living God. And what's David's response? As he runs towards his oppressor, 1 Samuel 17, 45, David says this, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in what? The name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Takes a stone, puts it in his forehead, throws the giant to the ground, takes his sword, cuts off his head, and the victory is whose? The Lord's. There's something about this name. Something about this name, so much so that Jesus knows what he's doing as he teaches his followers to pray that of the six petitions in this prayer, this one comes first. That before we would ask for God's kingdom to come and before we would ask for his will to be done and before we would ask for daily bread, before we would ask for forgiveness, before we would ask to be delivered from the evil one, we would first say, Hallelujah be your name. Why? Why would Jesus give us this one first? I want to suggest to you that we are given this petition first because this becomes the supreme purpose for our prayer and for our lives, that we would hollow the name of God we would regard the name of God as holy. We would live our lives in such a way that shows the world our God is holy. Are you with me this morning? So if that is the case, then it means that for the sake of calling God's kingdom to come and his will to be done, for the sake of our daily bread, for the sake of asking God to forgive us our trespasses so that we can forgive those who trespass against us for the sake of asking him to deliver us from the evil one. It would all be for the purpose of what? Hallowing the name of God. Hallowing the name of God. Can the world look upon God's people and realize and see that God's name is a name that stands above every name? Can God, can, can, can the world look upon God's people and see that they have a God who was and is and is to come? That they have a God who is not just a healer, he is the healer. Who is not just a provider, he is the provider. Who is not just a savior, he is the savior. God's name expresses who he is is. There's something about this name. Theologian and scholar Dallas Willard says it like this. The idea is that his name should be treasured and loved. Treasured and loved more than any other. Held in absolutely unique position among humanity. His name should be treasured and loved. 
what happens to a people who treasure and who love the name of God above all else? What happens to a people? I want to suggest to you three ways this morning I think we hollow the name of God. Three ways that we hollow the name of God, and it speaks to the way the saints who have come before us, and it will speak to the way the saints who come after us treasure the name of God. And there are a hundred answers to this, but three that I feel the Lord is giving us this morning. Number one, we hollow the name of God by praying unceasingly. I think this is appropriate since we're in a series on the Lord's Prayer on Jesus teaching us to pray. There's something about coming to the place of prayer on a regular basis that begins to cultivate and create something in us that hallows, that treasures and loves the name that is above every other name. You remember the story of Daniel? We have King Darius who sets 120 satraps and officiates over the land. And, and yet of them, we see Daniel and a couple other distinguished. And then Daniel distinguished above them. And out of jealousy, we have the other satraps and high officials come to King Darius and say, Hey, why don't you create a decree that for a time period, that if anyone were to lift up prayer to any other name except yours, the king, they would be killed. And Darius said, that sounds fair enough. So he gives a decree. And Daniel hears this decree. And what's the first thing he does? He goes to his room. He opens his windows right towards Jerusalem and gets down on his knees three times a day. And he hallows the name of God. We have Daniel saying, you can take my life before you will take my supreme treasure. What is it about Noah building an ark in the desert? An ark in the desert, defying all odds, being obedient to the Lord to a fault. What would cause him to go to this place despite what the world around him says? Can I suggest that he found a supreme treasure in hollowing the name of God. What was it that drove Abraham to take his son and put him on an altar to sacrifice? What was it that made the name and person and being of God so much more supreme than the life of his son? What was it about Moses going back to Egypt in the face of all oppression, in, in spite the fact that he wrestles with fear and that God would use him to deliver a nation, to walk through a Red Sea that would give Moses the faith. Could it be that he found a supreme treasure? What was it about Joshua and Caleb as the Israelites are stuck in the wilderness and Moses tells 12 men to go scout out the promised land and come back and give a report. And all 12 men come back, 10 of them saying, yeah, the land is flowing with milk and honey, but there's no way this land is ours. There are giants in the land. There is no way that this will become a reality for us. And you got men like Joshua and Caleb going, are you out of your mind? Yahweh, the Lord, is behind us. 
The battle, the victory does not rest within our hands. It is the Lord's. What is it that gives these two men faith? That they would see God as a supreme treasure above their own frailty. What is it about Esther that would give her the faith to move into the inner court of the king facing death for the sake of being the voice for Israel? That she would regard God as a supreme treasure than life itself? What is it about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that refuse to bow their knee to some golden statue made by Nebuchadnezzar, that they realize a furnace would be far more worth it than giving up their regard and treasure for the name of God? What is it about Paul? What is it about John who would get boiled in oil and exiled to Patmos that he would regard God's name as his supreme treasure? What is it about Peter who would get crucified upside down? That death upside down on a cross was far more valuable than giving up the supreme treasure of hallowing the name of God. Brothers and sisters, what is it that cultivates a heart in God's people to cherish his name like this? Praying unceasingly. Praying unceasingly. Praying unceasingly, going to the place where we continue to acknowledge Yahweh as the one who is the God who was and is and is to come. We hallow the name of God by praying unceasingly. Number two is love thy neighbor as thyself. If we are to hallow God's name, we are to keep his commandments. We're to take God at his word. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5.14 summed up the law in this. He says, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as what? Yourself. Brothers and sisters, can I suggest to you this morning that the greatest apologetic, the greatest defense that we have for the Christian faith is not our theological constructs, it's not our denominational strengths, it's not our accessibility it's not our impressive worship services. The greatest defense that we have for the gospel today is our ability to love one another. To love one another. This is what we see with Jesus, don't we? Right before he gives this command to his followers, he's at, he's at the night that he's going to be a traitor at Passover. And what does Jesus do? He gets up from the table and he takes off his garment. And he gets a bowl of water and a towel and he gets on his hands and knees and the host assumes the place of a slave. And he begins to wash the feet of his followers, including that of his betrayer. What would it look like for us to be a people like this? That in fact, instead of isolating, being savages to being tribalistic over our enemies, those we disagree with, those we cannot stand, those who we feel violate our values, we would assume the position of a slave. We get down on our hands and knees and we wash the feet of our betrayer. 
Can you humor me for a second? I know I'm about to step on toes. What would it look like for our country to do this? Can you imagine if on, on inauguration day, the president who was got down on his hands and knees and washed the feet of the president-to-be? What fruit would that bear in our nation? What would it look like for people, a godly people, from every tribe, nation, race, socioeconomic background, political background, to come together and show the world what it looks like to hallow the name of God and hold his being as our absolute treasure above what we think, what we say, what we do. To hallow the name of God is to love thy neighbor as thyself. The command, the word, the law of God can be filled in this statement, in this statement alone. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And finally, I invite the worship team to come back up. Is that we hallow the name of God when we receive Jesus for all that God intends him to be. Who is this man 2,000 years ago that would wash the feet of his followers, that would have a crown of thorns shoved into his head, that would have 39 lashes ripped across his back, that would have stakes driven through his hands, his feet, and he would put on a tree in humiliation? Who is this man? Who is this man? In Matthew 10, 40, Jesus is talking to his followers and he says this, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Welcomes the one who sent me. So in fact, to receive Jesus is to believe that Jesus is all who God says he is. And who is this man? Well, if we're reading scripture correctly, we can come to the conclusion that this man is living water. All who come to him and drink, they will never thirst again. This man is the well that never runs dry. He's bottomless keeps coming, keeps coming, keeps coming. You fall down, he picks you up. You scrape your knee, he tends to your wound. You struggle, you feel lost, he's there. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Who is this man? He is the bread of life. All those who partake in him, they won't go hungry again. They won't go hungry again. What will you find in Jesus, the Messiah? You will find the one in whom your soul will long for, for all of eternity. The one who will satisfy you beyond any means. And to receive him is to take God at his absolute word.
to receive him is to hollow God's name. Will you stand with me? I love, I love what Pastor Aaron was saying earlier. It's just so often we come before and we call upon the name of the Lord and we are seeking something. We're seeking provision. We're seeking healing. We're seeking salvation. We're seeking comfort. We're seeking the reality of being known, yes. And I want to invite you to do that today. I want to invite you to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved today. But I also want to invite you to do what Jesus is teaching us to do here with our prayers and with our lives. Let's regard his name as holy, as the name that is above every name. And the first way, in, in reality, the exclusive way we can do that here is by coming and surrendering to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's why we come to the table. If you have your elements, can you go ahead and open them with me? That our Savior, the Lamb that was slain, on the night that he was betrayed, want to show us that it will not be our sh- by our strength, by our effort, by our talent, but it will be by his being, his character, his nature. God is not a Savior. He is the Savior. God is not just one who, who could wash clean. He is the one who does wash clean in the person of Jesus. And so as we have these elements, what I would love for us to do is an act of response today is take the words of the Lord's prayer on our lips as a sign of responding to the name that is to be treasured and loved and regarded as holy among us today. So brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to say these words with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Father, we come before you. And we take the cup and the bread and realize that this is the body and blood of your Son, actively living actively sanctifying, actively making us holy today. We trust you. We welcome you. Brothers and sisters, can you take the bread? Can you break it? And see this as the body, the essence of God's finished work for you 
and me in the person of Jesus Christ that was broken for us. And so as we do this, let's remember him. You can take the bread. And likewise, you can open the cup and see that God is the one who has come to wash you and make you new today. Receive this blood, the cup, as the means by which God presents you as his bride without spot, without blemish. Every time we're to take this, the cup, the new covenant poured out in his blood, let us remember who he is. You can take the cup with me this morning. Lord, we welcome you. We welcome you. Yahweh, the great I am. El Roi, Jehovah Jireh, Elohim, Adonai, the God who was and is and is to come. We regard you, we hold you as holy this morning. Come, have your way. Brothers and sisters, let's respond and worship.
Would you extend your, your hands like this to receive the benediction? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance upon you and give you rest. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Thank you. I'd like to ask the altar ministry to come forward. If you would like prayer for any reason, they are available to partner with you. Stop by Connect Central on your way out. We're so glad to have you today. Have a wonderful week. Go in peace.